You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Uh, good morning. Welcome to University of Baptist Church. My name is Josh. Uh, a few things. Uh, there are visitors today. And um, the funny thing about visitors is, uh, I'm preaching on the divorce text, by the way, um, is it's kind of like a blunt text to like say hello with. Um, but this is one of the things I love about the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit is that we can talk about complicated, hard things without really introduction. So even though there's that, welcome here. Also, I should say this is probably my third or fourth um, topic this semester. It's like, huh, okay. So didn't set out that way. It's what the lectionary handed me. Kind of a couple of YOLO moments. So we're just going to go for it and see what happens. Um, okay. Something you may not know about me is that I, uh, I love the game of chess. Before the pandemic, Toph and I would play each other about two or three times a week. And uh, aside from the leisure, I derive from the game itself, which is a lot. Um, I think there's something almost romantic about chess. It's got these medieval figures, kind of a medieval architecture, and really simple um, plot points in the game. And yet the outcomes are really complicated and sophisticated. Chess seems, at least in my short history of observing, to come and go in popularity. I think back to the early 80s. Um, chess was the battleground, one of the battlegrounds for the Cold War, along with ice hockey between the U.S. and the USSR. Then by the time I was a teenager in the early 90s, it seemed had to, been, to have been relegated back to nerd status, you know, for the math club and whatnot. Um, then Harry Potter came out, and it jumped up in popularity again with 11-year-olds. And then in 2020, Netflix released The Queen's Gambit, which um, really just gave chess a new life like it hadn't had before. Mary Higby from Goliath Games said that chess sales rose 178%. All the ones that Amazon would recommend as featured games were immediately sold out. In 2012, um, a couple of friends of mine from UBC created a chess tournament at the Dancing Bear. Um, there was an amateur division and a pro division. Because I'm humble and I take measure of myself and because I like to only enter things in which I know I'm going to be the winner, I went ahead and entered the amateur division. And um, am I Bobby Fischer? Maybe. Uh, but did I take first place in the 2012 Chipper Things Waco Fork Chess Tournament? Yes, I did. I actually had planned to bring my plaque from that. Um, it was going to be a, a sermon prop, kind of a show and tell thing. I haven't done that. Maybe I can talk Taylor Beard into putting that into the uh, Instagram life cycle this week. Real uh, something just to brighten your week up. Anyways. Um, so uh, this might also not surprise you. Netflix has a show called Explained. It's like these 20-minute vignettes that um, Ezra Klein, the guy that started Vox and does some really incredible work, uh, puts out. And um, Explained really will cover any topic. Uh, why there is a monarchy, the coming oil crisis, the coming water crisis, skin, anything. Well, one of the episodes they did was on, on chess. Um, so I got fascinated with some of this. In case you don't know, chess um, is a game with 32 pieces, 16 for each side, and there's eight pawns, that's half your, your pieces, and then there's a set of like monarchical figures that comprise your, your power pieces, and then there are 64 spaces, just like a checkers board if you've played that and not chess. Um, here's some fascinating figures I learned from watching this uh, episode of Explained. <clears throat> for the first four moves, there are 318,979,564 possible outcomes. For the first 10, there are, and I can't try because this next number is too big, that many possible outcomes. Now, I don't know what that number is, but that's the point. There's this mathematician, a guy named Claude Shannon, who wanted to calculate 
the possible outcomes for an entire game of chess. Uh, but he, he introduced some limitations. For example, most games of chess on average are about 40 moves. So he took that into consideration. He also eliminated like stupid um, strategies might, people might have like to put their queen out there to get killed right away, right? That would be a possibility, but really nobody within reason plays that way, etc. So he introduced these limitations. And then given these assumptions, Shannon calculated using the lower bound of the game tree complexity, took that right out of Wikipedia, I have no idea what that means, uh, but that's what he did. Also, I'll just skip past all the other jargon I wrote down that none of us will get and get to the punchline. Shannon thinks there are, with these parameters again, 10 to the 123rd power possible outcomes uh, in a normal game of chess. Now, if you're like me and you, you hear that number and you just think, oh, wow, but really you have no idea what it means, here's uh, something to compare by. Um, astronomers, physicians, phys whatever, those people, they, um, they think that it is estimated that there is 10 to the 80th atoms in the observable universe. Uh, now hang with me. This is going to be one of these inductive moments where I throw out a bunch of data in the sermon. Hopefully, eventually it makes sense. Um, I was a failed computer science major in college for about a year. I lasted long enough to have a basic understanding about how computer programming works, works, which I'm about to explain. And if you actually know about that and I get it wrong, just let it slide. It's really critical for the rest of the sermon. Um, the way it works, I think, is that you have these microprocessors and what they essentially have is like a million on-off switches, right? Um, because that's all a computer can do is like on-off, yes, no. Uh, as such, um, computers use something called binary code in their language, right? It's a, it's a base two number system. We, in our everyday casual math, use a base 10 number system, zero, one through nine. Their only numbers available computers are zero and one, and that's again because the on-off switches, right? So this is, um, so they can do things, and, and, and they use this, like if you've seen the matrix, you remember this? Anytime you go into the, like the meta structure of the matrix, it would be all these uh, green numbers floating up down. If you look closely, they're all zeros and ones. That's because that's how computers think and talk, right? So um, if you're a computer then and you're writing a computer program, say like a chess program, you would do it as then. Um, if a person moves pawn to F4, then a computer moves pawn to E5. Yes, no, on, off. Very simple, binary, uh, black and white system of making decisions. Um, and so what a computer can do is take a set of parameters and outcomes and use the rules that are given to it to calculate trillions of outcomes in a way that we never can. Not only can the computer store those outcomes, but it can process through those things very quickly and use them in rational, effective ways. Um, so no matter how sophisticated our chess playing will get, eventually the computers just will have us. It won't be, we won't be able to beat them. So that's computers. Now here's another fact about computers. When I was a senior in high school, computers were on the rise. Um, you could go to like 10 websites, you could drop into a Pearl Jam chat room, you could email people, you could surf the web with either Lycos or Yahoo, it was a very riveting place. Also in my senior year of high school, we entered a new millennium, and computers freaked out about it. Uh, we, the poor souls of the 20th century, were very concerned about something called the Y2K bug, you remember this? Well, unless you're younger than that, I, I just uh, found Scour the Internet for a little National Geographic video, kind of condensing the problem for us, so we can all share in this together. There still exists a general state of either denial, complacency, or even apathy about both the reality and the potential effects of Y2K. By the end of the 90s, many of us were happy slaves to our computers. But our new masters had a trick they had forgotten to tell us about. The basic idea on Y2K was that for convenience, all these computer programs, when it came to do dates, you only needed two numbers. Why use four numbers when you only need two? 
And then they recognize what date is a commuter going to think it is when we get to 2000. One simple date change for man, one major screw-up for computer. At the stroke of midnight, January 1st, 2000, elevators may stop. Heat may vanish. Credit cards and ATMs may cease to function. Airplanes and trains may come to a halt. People were terrified the world was going to end. This is not one of the summer movies where you can close your eyes during the scary parts. With nearly everything in our economy run by computers, the prospect of a digital meltdown is too huge to contemplate. I was worried because the whole computer game was new to us, and I was a little ignorant. We didn't know what we didn't know. And many thought what we didn't know was going to hurt us. I've got a, a revolver right now, but I wanted something, something more. That was a dragon's breath shell. It can shoot a 4,000-degree flame 300 feet. It's also the most popular ammunition among Y2K customers at KGS Guns and Ammo. There was a fear. Everything's in the internet. Everything's in computers. And we're going to lose it all. And Jesus is coming back. With pre-millennium tensions growing, the president appoints a crisis management expert to prevent a Y2K meltdown. Eight to 10% of the population were fairly confident that this was gonna be uh, an apocalypse. The president called me one night and said, here's an office and an assistant and don't let the world stop. Okay, well, you know what I was thinking about during the, the film there? Brian Hoppy's here. You work in cybersecurity, how am I doing in my sermon illustrations? All right, all right. Uh, so computers, on the one hand, can calculate the outcomes of like a, a trillion moves for chess and, and crush the best human player. Uh, why? And this is very critical. Because it's a closed system of rules. And computers can completely crap out and ruin the world if you enter the wrong date in the registry. Here's another way for me to make a similar point. We have a Roomba, you know, it's a, uh, like a robot vacuum cleaner. And uh, sometimes during the week, if the Roomba kicks on and I'm in the house by myself I, doing something epistemic like sermon writing and I need a break just to think, I'll kind of lean back in my chair, crack the knuckles, and, and become mesmerized by the Roomba. It can almost become therapeutic, and I'll, and I'll watch it. And it almost can seem sentient at times, right? Because what the Roomba is, is it's a computer program just trying to figure things out in real time. Uh, I particularly enjoy it when the Roomba gets stuck under a chair that you have like four legs. And uh, it, it's amazing if it gets in there because it has to be a pretty narrow uh, margin of error, but it gets in there, it, it's just, it's pretty much dead. It takes like 30 minutes for the Roomba to get out because the Roomba has these sensor things on the side and it runs into them and it says to itself, uh, if wall, stop, turn. So then it hits wall, stops, turn, 30 degree, tries again. It's like, <laughs> and it does this for like a half an hour, right? Um, now consider this. We currently have two foster children. The older one is three. We'll call him Cheeto for the sake of this story. Uh, Cheeto's pretty smart as three-year-olds go, um, but here's what Cheeto can't do. Can't write his name. Uh, can't tie a shoe, can't ride a bike, puts his pants on backwards when he gets to do it by himself, uh, uses his pronouns incorrectly, doesn't have the emotional intelligence to deuce when I'm ignoring him on purpose, that sort of stuff, right? Uh, certainly can't beat a computer in a game of chess. Um, but here's what I'm certain of. If I stick Cheeto in a reasonably, reasonably easy maze where he can kind of see and check out his options 
and then I make him race the Roomba, he's going to win by like 20, 30, maybe even 60 minutes. And why is that? Why is it that a three-year-old can beat a computer at which direction to move in? Because Cheeto has this intangible thing we call intuition that enables him to move freely in open systems where the rules are fluid and ambiguous. For as brilliant as computer chess programs and digital vacuum cleaners are, the one thing they can't do is compromise when the rules change. Uh, This is a sermon about divorce in which I will now try and make sense of that very long introduction. In Matthew 5, at the beginning of of Jesus' story in that gospel, uh, he gives the Sermon on the Mount, and if you listen closely, Jesus makes a cryptic statement about um, chess players and toddlers and digital vacuum cleaners. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now fast forward to the very end of that gospel. Jesus is crucified, and why is that? Because the Pharisees think that all Jesus has done is broke the law. And how did Jesus break the law? He ate with sinners. He healed on the Sabbath. He uh, played fast and loose with food laws. His disciples followed suit. He didn't discipline them. In short, what Jesus did was expose the deficiency of the law system. He exposed the limitations. Um, This, by the way, is really the reason Christianity continues to have any relevance today. It's not because Jesus gave us these timeless truths for all eternity. Yes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday yesterday and forever. That's in Hebrews. But you know who's not? We are. We evolve. We change. Society keeps moving forward. And so what Jesus did teach us how to do is move through ambiguity and love with the help of the Holy Spirit. He showed us that the law was deficient from the get-go. He showed us how to fulfill and then supersede the law so that we could both honor the intent of the law and then break it to improve it. I think that this relationship between Jesus fulfilling the law and superseding it with love and the complexity involved in that discernment is no more more apparent than his his comments on divorce. So I want to pause here and step back and name, I think, a few reasons why this has been so taboo for the church to address. Number one, uh, the church has not had a really flimsy position on divorce historically. Interestingly, for whatever reason, it has been one of the things that has seemed like a non-negotiable. The second thing is this, uh, the church has judged divorced people. Even if the church didn't think it was trying to do that, the church has done that. Um, I think one of the reasons that the church has failed to consistently address the issue of divorce with compassion is is because they've treated it like one of those issues that falls into the closed system where the rules never change. The reason to get divorced is one of those if-then. And what is the if-then? Well, in Matthew's telling of the story, which is a bit more sophisticated than Mark, but in Mark's, Um, Jesus has given at first glance what feels like a pretty clear exception clause. Here I'll read from Matthew, I think 19, it's 11 or 12. I tell uh, you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Uh, That word that gets translated sexual immorality is pornei. It's the same root word we get the word pornography from. Uh, Does it mean sexual immorality? That might be a good translation. Our, Our best guess is adultery, but an honest reader will tell you that we can't be sure. But let's assume it's adultery. Let's assume that's the exception clause we're getting in Matthew 19 and Mark 12. Um, One might, some have argued, that there in fact isn't just one exception rule in Judaism, but there's up to five. The first one would be the one we just cited. Uh, The second one would be infertility. I think this is a bit flimsy, but people derive this from the mandates given to us in Genesis 1. Remember in the Abrahamic tradition, the currency of clout and power is progeny. 
And so um, reproduction is a big deal. And then there's this interesting set of verses in Exodus 21. This is not long after the Ten Commandments. And um, this is actually an early bit of feminism, even if retrospectively it looks to us um, a bit archaic. But women are given a little bit of um, clout when it says that uh, if a husband fails to offer food, clothing, or love, and think of love in terms of conjugal rights, again, not the best image, but this is a world where progeny matters, um, that women are given permission to leave that marriage without penalty, particularly fiscal penalty. Here's what else you should know. About 100 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, there are two major schools of thought that form within Judaism that have impact on the theological scene. The first is the school of that thought that follows a rabbi named Hillel, and the second is a school of thought that follows a guy named Shammai. Hillel is generally considered to be the guy of the loosening tradition. So think of that language that Jesus uses in Matthew 16 and 18. Whatever you bind in heaven or bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. This language of binding and loosing is to make judgments about the law, about the Torah, to expound on them, to give commentary, okay? This is what rabbis do. So Hillel is generally considered the guy of the loosening tradition. Uh, Shammai, conversely, is your binding tradition, your conserve tradition, your preserve. So in regards to the divorce, Shammai was a traditionalist. He wanted a very narrow exception clause for divorce. You had to have a really good reason in his mind to even be eligible, and then even then the reason might not be good enough. Uh, Hillel literally says that divorce should be permissible if one's wife does something as trivial as burn your eggs for breakfast. Now, Jesus almost always, insofar as we have historical record, sides with Hillel. Jesus' Jesus's vision for both upholding and superseding the law with his behavior and his magical trick for doing so is the relational force of grace. Jesus understands that people are transformed by love, not law, except for on this teaching. Jesus sides with Shammai. Now, here's a question for you. Does that mean that Jesus stands in a long tradition of evangelicals who have had a stringent and pretty unforgiving posture towards divorce. Well, that can be difficult to discern. Let's consider what Jesus does say. He says that, sure, you can get a certificate of divorce, an option, by the way, Moses made available to you only because of the hardness of your hearts. This has always been plan B, but let me remind you what plan A was. It was, from Genesis 1, metaphysical in scope. The two should become one flesh. If you're romantic, you should like this proposal. The reality of the situation that Jesus is speaking to in the first century, and again, the one that Moses is speaking to 1,400 years before this, is that two individuals would marry, yes, um, to, perhaps because there was some attraction, but the real concern there uh, didn't have much to do with affection at all. It was really an economic exchange. Um, women were commodities whose primary purpose was progeny and who had little to no place in culture if divorced. So Moses' exception clause has the same aim as Jesus. It is designed to give women dignity and status in a world where they might not always have any. Um, a few months ago, I had lunch with my friend David Pooler, and I asked David to, to name a few people that he admired. It was a very meaningful conversation. He did that, and he got to the, the back end of his list, and um, he began to talk about his wife, Cheryl, and um, David became a bit emotional, and... Um, I was very moved by this, uh, and he began to speak very tenderly about Cheryl and, and say j just some really beautiful things. It was, as they say in the comment section of social media, wholesome. Um, and so I had the opportunity to interview the two of them this week to put in the newsletter that will come out this Tuesday, and um, you can watch that if you want. And, and so I told Cheryl the story about having lunch with David and him recalling her and 
her impact on his life. And um, I, I very gently explained to them that, um, you know, uh, we're a young congregation, so they had a little bit more experience in the marriage department than most of us, 29 years, and they received that very well. And so I said, would you take this opportunity just to pass along a few things that have been meaningful for you guys or that you've learned? Here's what David said. D- David talked about friendship, the importance of being friends. He talked about mutual admiration. He talked about um, learning how to have hard conversations And then Cheryl talked about learning to celebrate one another's differences, but at the same time, making a real commitment to grow with each other because there was inevitable transformation in marriage, that it takes work. I think that when Jesus is trying to appeal to something more beautiful and complex than divorce certificates, he has something like what the Poolers were describing in mind. Friendship, admiration, hard conversations, celebrating one another's differences and learning to grow together. This reminds me, by the way, of um, a proposal from theologian Eugene Robert Rogers and what he has suggested the purpose of marriage, which is, as he argues, the possibility for a school of virtue. This school of virtue, I will tell you, it is worth fighting for. It is the good stuff. It's the stuff that sits patiently in cancer wards, It cries together over negative pregnancy tests. It's the stuff that learns to laugh at bodily limitations as they set in. It's the stuff that shares concerns when teenagers don't call and it's past midnight. It's the decision to take over the entire chore chart when your partner is sick. And sometimes, really broken marriages can be mended. And that is a testimony to resurrection and the hope we have in Jesus when it happens. And sometimes marriages can't be mended. And the reason they can't be mended falls outside the list of five exception clauses that we have in our Bible. And if we can't be honest about that, then I fear we will fall prey to operating in a closed loop system that malfunctions when a variable is thrown into that makes like, the inability to calculate the new year. Um, As I have aged more and grown more, and I think honestly moved more and more out of an understanding of a Bible as a closed loop system that malfunctions when variables are thrown into it, and that really um, the ambiguity of ethics is governed by the spirit of love, I found that Jesus offers what turns out to be a very simple and yet incredibly helpful piece of advice And that is just this question, what kind of fruit is being produced? Um, And with that, then I ask you a really hard question. What do we do when we have people who have broken the law, but because of it seem to be bearing fruit? I have had students sit in my office and told me in tears that they screamed, daddy don't leave, as their father walked out of the door for the last time. And I have had students sit in my office and express to me how grateful they were when their parents finally had the courage to get divorced because their life became so much more peaceful and everything got better. I have seen people who thought they would have their lives back when they got divorced and in fact went into a tailspin of depression, despair, and destructive lifestyle choices. And I have seen people who have committed to sticking it out but whose spouse ended their marriage and have thriving, vibrant second half of life experiences. I've seen people in marriages that were hanging on by a thread, 
but through a miracle of communication and therapy have their lives restored. And I have seen people who have been dedicated to sticking it out and who persisted in that commitment and died in their misery. So here's the hard truth that I've had to reckon with. Some people who never get divorced never bear any fruit, and some people who do, do. And what do you do with that? Well, not much if all you have is a closed loop of a closed loop system of, of rule keeping. Um, very often, when divorce is discussed in the church, uh, people will cite Malachi two sixteen, um, and the way that's presented is we are reminded that it says that God hates divorce. Just a few exegetical points. Number one, in this context, as is the case often with the minor prophets, God is speaking about God's relationship with Israel. But more than that, a better translate, or a better translation, or at least a more contextual one is this. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, which is, again, uh, a little more nuanced, I think a little more helpful. Um, so if anything, this is another long attempt in a long line of biblical traditions who um, have made a point to offer women agency in a world where they have none. But here's my point in quoting Malachi. Uh, you know who else hates divorce? divorced people. It's actually more excruciating for them than it is for you and me. They are full well aware of how bad it sucks because they've been there. So here's my conclusion. Um, is, is this a sermon in which my aim is to give permission for people to get divorced? No, I can't possibly do that. I have counseled people for many hours and worked through some hard moments, but I can't make that kind of, only the Holy Spirit and the person discerning in their circumstances um, can make that decision. Um, but this is a sermon in which I want to express the truth that marriage is hard and sometimes they don't work out. And if that is you, you are no less for it. Uh, so I just wanted to conclude by making a few remarks. Number one, I believe you that it is hard. And I believe you that I don't know the whole story. And I believe you that sometimes you didn't tell the whole truth to either protect children involved or to protect even spouses that you've had a hard time keeping unloving. I believe you that you tried to make it work. And I believe you that you're happier now and that God has been gracious and is working in you and doing things through you. And I am sorry that the church has judged you at such a tender moment in your journey. But we assert a God of resurrection and hope who steps into these situations and redeems and makes beautiful. And the last note of this song, I promise you, is a joyous one. So let us pray and celebrate. Holy Spirit, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for this school of virtue. We thank you for this way of knowing you, being formed in the image of Jesus. And we confess that it is hard. And sometimes... Um, the, the potential for the best um, holds the potential for the worst. And so we sit in real grief with people who have moved through this process and had to endure hard things. And Holy Spirit, we ask for the clarity to sit in that space with them without judgment. At the same time, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us to be supportive and to uphold and, and to fight for and to protect marriages when that's a real possibility. And so we hold all these tensions together. We know it's, it's complicated, um, but we move forward in hope and, and with possibility because we know that um, you're the great physician and that you fix and restore and make beautiful again. We hold on to that hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we like to take time and sit together and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. Let's listen together. <laughs> 